You're listening to the Let's Be Real podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Andy Hughes and Denise Russo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another special edition of the Let's Be Real podcast. I'm Andy Hughes alongside Denise Russo. We also have a special guest right now that brings leadership magic to people, rain or shine. He is the former vice president of the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. He also spent time as the VP of Epcot and Hollywood Studios as well. He is the son of Lee Cockrell, who joined us on the same podcast last year around the same time. After 26 years of an amazing career at Disney, he and his wife Valerie started their own consulting and speaking business. He is the host of the Come Rain or Shine Leadership Podcast, and this past August, he also published a book called How's the Culture in Your Kingdom? We're very pleased to welcome Dan Cockrell to the Let's Be Real Podcast. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, Andy. That was an awesome introduction, man. You were smooth. You got it all in there. You had a little, little, little to come rain or shine. I mean, well done. Thank you. Yeah, and we're really excited to have you. Uh, I did mention there off the top uh, that we interviewed your dad about a year ago on this podcast. Uh, how has everything been with you and your family during this unprecedented year, uh, to say the least? Yeah, I mean, it's, first of all, we're very lucky. I mean, I know how many people are suffering and, you know, to have your family around, have a, you know, a place to live. And, you know, there's a lot of things we're, we're not having to worry about right now, but my parents are, 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 have been very disciplined. They are quarantined in their house. Uh, they're playing it safe. They, um, you know, they go on their shopping trip once a week with their masks. Uh, they have a, they work, they used to work out a lot and now they still do that, but they do it with uh, remotely. Their trainer calls them on uh, FaceTime and they get their works out, workouts done. So they're, they're doing, they're doing great. And like I said, I think we, this idea is it's been really hard, but you gotta, I'm a big silver lining kind of guy. You got to count your blessings, get through this and make the most of it. Cause there'll be another side to this. And as I tell people, uh, young people, this won't be the last and it probably won't be the worst crisis you've ever faced. So, you know, mm-hmm. learn how to work through these things because, you know, life is ups and downs and this is a, a good time to learn also. I agree. I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of resilience, a lot of innovation right now during this period. Obviously, there's a lot of tough times too, you know, um, lives have been lost, there's economic issues. And, and I have to mention to how amazing it has been to see you and your dad, Lee, offer help to so many people who were laid off. And I know Disney has had a lot as well. Uh, how difficult are some of these conversations? Uh, but at the same time, I, I would bet that they have a, a pretty big impact as well when you can talk these people through just such a tough time in their lives. Yeah, you know, when this started happening and, you know, the furloughs were going on and when the layoffs started getting announced, um, I was, you know, my dad and I were chatting about it and Valerie. And we said, you know what, we... um we don't want to get involved where we shouldn't, but we're sort of uniquely positioned to talk to people who are getting laid off because we were at the company for many years and we kind of you know, left on our own and decided there was life after Disney. And I think, um, you know, we got to think about that when we left and a lot of people didn't have that choice this time around. And um, that's the shadow side to such a strong culture is not being part of it is um, it's hard. And I told, you know, we've done these, a couple of these webinars, open webinars for anyone who wanted to join and talk to cast members and leaders who have been laid off about, let us just tell you about our experiences. And here's what's going through your mind right now. Here's, you're a lot better than you know you are because you've been in an environment where a lot of things that you do in an excellent way are just considered the way you do things in the outside world. They're really a big deal. So we've, we've shared a lot of our experiences, a lot of our fears, 
leaving Disney and tried to kind of be empathetic with them to get their confidence up so they can look towards, you know what, I can go function the outside. I, I am able to do this. And it's been really rewarding for us to be able to help people along the way because we still have lots of friends there and a lot of very talented people. And um, the, the big thing I told them, I said, look, I've been gone two and a half years. I dream about working at Disney two or three nights a week. I say, you know, I'm in these dreams and people are saying, I thought you left. I'm like, yeah, I thought I did too. This is very awkward. <laughs> and then I wake up, I'm like, all right, I did leave. So when you've spent that much time somewhere and have been that immersed in that culture and being, you know, having a common purpose like that, it's for most people, the worry is not losing their job. It's not, you know, financial. It's just not being part of that community anymore. And that's a, it's, it's hard to walk away from, but uh, we're doing what we can, you know, everyone's positioned to help people at some point and a lot of people helped us. So it's just, it seems like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I think it's fantastic. And I know you had mentioned there, you, you know, you dream about working at Disney. That, that was going to be actually my next question. Uh, you know, how did you get started? Was it something where, you know, you saw your dad and, you know, he had so much, experience and, and such a big impact at Disney. Um, how did that all get started with, with, you know, wanting to, to be work at Disney? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, obviously I grew up in the hospitality industry. You know, my dad did that for years. So I was immersed in it. As I tell people, when I was six years old, I knew how to call room service. <laughs> and when they came, I knew that some, I, I was supposed to say to the, you know, the server, put a tip on it. You know, I didn't know how to do that, but I knew you're supposed to say that. Um, so I, you know, I learned that stuff along the way. And as I grew up, I was uh, always into sports. You know, I love being with people and working on teams. Um, I waited tables in, uh, in, in college, I worked on the college program my sophomore year at Boston University and enjoyed that. I worked at Marriott at the Copley Marriott at Champions Bar when I was in college. So it just seemed like I was always in places where I like being with people. I like serving people. I liked helping people and, you know, hospitality, that was a natural, that's a natural fit. Um, so when I, uh, you know, after I, I graduated, I still, I was a political science major, so I had no clue what I wanted to do, but I knew that I liked working at Marriott. I liked working at Disney and I liked sports and all the three of those things, they're, they're very structured environments. Mm -hmm. There's, there's very specific rules and guidelines about what you can and can't do. Um, you get a lot of feedback in all three of those sports and Marriott and Disney. So I just realized that's an environment I wanted to be in. And so while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I decided to go back to Disney and uh, had an incredible opportunity. You know, Disneyland Paris was um, going to open um, about a year after I graduated. And so I came back down to Walt Disney World after I got out of college, started parking cars at Epcot. I did that for about six months. And then I got a work visa through school and was able to go over and open the parking lot in France because that's all I knew how to do at that point. And um, ended up staying over there for five years. And uh, my, my wife is from France. And so, as I like to tell people, 27 years after we got married, you know, every anniversary, did you marry me just for the green card? And I said, look, we have three kids now. We've been married 27 years, maybe. <laughs> no, but uh, um, so anyway, we stayed over there for five years and then it just progressed. And then when we got back to Walt Disney World in 1997, um, just kept going job to job to job. I never thought about doing anything else because I, it's such a big company. You get to have different experiences. You know, I got to do 19 different jobs with the company during that 26 year time period. And the other great thing is, you know, we didn't have to move every time I got a new job like I did when I was growing up. Although I loved moving when I was little, I really didn't care. But our kids, we didn't have to take them out of school. We didn't have to sell our house because all the jobs I had were at Walt Disney World. 
Um, so it's one of those things like a lot of people, Disney, they come down to get a job until they figure out what they want to do and they blink and 20, 30 years goes by and they realize what they were doing was actually what they wanted to do all along. Yeah. And that's such a great feeling too. And, and I love how, uh, I know you had mentioned that you, you started as a parking attendant at Epcot and, you know, you eventually moved on to France for the Disneyland uh, management training program about, you know, almost a year later or so. Um, how important was that oppor- that first opportunity that you got in Disney? Because, you know, when you get a job, uh, obviously you're excited, but at the same time, you really want to make a really good first impression and, you know, just an instant impact when you get in there. So how important was it to make the most of that first opportunity as a parking attendant at Epcot? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, in the back of my mind, I I never dreamed that I'd go on and do what I did. I mean, I don't know if anyone really understands what the future holds, but, mm-hmm. you know, being at Epcot back in 1991, parking cars, I it never even, I, I couldn't even fathom the fact that I'd be back there one day as the vice president of that park. I mean, it was just like, mm-hmm. there's no way I didn't even consider it. But um, what I did know was, you know, I was going to move on and I was going to get into management roles. And so the great experience there was I knew I was there for a, a limited period of time. And then I was going to be moving, going to Disney in France to become a management trainee. So I took advantage of every moment as a frontline employee and said, okay, I'm going to be managing people like this in the future. What's it like to be a frontline employee? And so what do the managers say? What do they not say? Do they show up? Do they not show up? How does the scheduling department work? Um, how is everyone treated? What, what do people say in the break room, you know, after the manager leaves? Cause I knew I wasn't going to be privy to those conversations in the future. So I was kind of like a fly on the wall, knowing that this was going to pay back sometime in the future. And I, you know, I underestimated how much it did because, you know, when I got back years and years later, um, you know, 21 years later, I came back as the vice president of Epcot and some of the same people were still working the parking lot, you know, they're like, Hey, Dan's back. Let's, how are you doing? And, you know, the manager's like, you can't call his office. They're like, why he's the vice president. Like, no, that's the college kid we used to work with. So it was, it was extremely powerful. And I never, ever forgot what it was like to be a frontline employee and how hard the job is, how physically hard is, how, you know, the standards. And it really um, gave me a really big focus moving forward on making sure we never took our eye off the frontline employees. And that's, you know, that's Disney's philosophy. We know that the value of that experience comes from the thousands of frontline cast members who deliver that experience. And that always kept me very grounded in, in what, in the jobs I did and, and made me never forget how important it was to make sure they had the tools and the training and the motivation to do their jobs. I feel so lucky, Dan, to be on the opposite side of the lens of looking at those cast members because I am a very happy annual pass holder, have been for many, many years. I'm decked out today with my (laughs) Disney hire on, and uh, I just love the diversity and uniqueness of all the different parks. And you've got to experience so many different areas of the business, whether it was in Paris or parking like you've described, or ticketing, guest relations food and beverages, human resources, growing up watching your dad at the Marriott and the other organizations. And I would imagine that having that knowledge and versatility with so many different areas of the business gave you an advantage when applying for other opportunities. So can you share a little bit about that as well as how uh, how you made the decision to go from working in the world of tourism and entertainment in a corporate world and deciding to go out on your own? Yeah, boy, you made two big questions and points. These are like mega questions. <laughs> so the first one, you are right on. Uh, anytime 
I speak with, you know, younger people who are looking for career advice or even people who want just career advice in general, I tell them that I've just, my experience in life has been diverse experiences and it's not just for your career. I think it just makes life more interesting. You're smarter when you get diverse experiences, you're more, um, you have a better point of view. I think you're more humble when you get exposed to all these different people and jobs and cultures and you realize how much you don't know. And, you know, that's the big thing I've um, been talking and exploring for years about, you know, I'm bit really into self-awareness. And the thing is, the funny thing is, the more self-aware you become, the more you realize you probably don't know a lot about yourself because you, so, and as you get older, and I just read an article yesterday, actually, they said, um, they took a, um, a bunch of uh, teenagers and, and said, uh, how, um, how self-aware are you? And I forget how they phrased the question. But like, you know, 80% said they're highly self-aware. And then they asked these same people when they were like 40 years old, how self-aware were you when you were a teenager? And, you know, they said, well, like five or 10%. And then they, they said, how self-aware are you now? And they were like 80%. And then they asked 70-year-olds, how self-aware were you at 40? And they said five or 10%. And of course, so in the moment, you always think you know much more than you do. And in hindsight, you look back, you're like, wow, I, I was pretty clueless back then. So anyway, I kind of went on a tangent there. But diverse experiences, I think it's it makes you better. It makes you smarter. It makes you more um, uh, flexible. And so I was always looking at Disney. I wanted the reputation for someone who was willing to go try new things. And after a while, it kind of gets tiring to always be the novice. You're always the new person learning. Um, you know, when I was in parks, I got really good. I knew everyone. I knew my job. And then all of a sudden I went to resort hotels because I didn't know how to run that business. And I had to start all over again. Like, how does this business work? And what's who, I don't have a network here. And you really, it kind of works on your confidence. But a year later, you're like, wow, I know how to run a front desk now. And then later, I know how to run a housekeeping department. And later, I know how to run a hotel. And these, all these experiences build on each other. And they just build and build and build. And I never imagined that working in France for five years would put me in a position as a general manager of the All-Star Hotel to be able to go have a conversation with all the Haitian cast members who speak French. And all of a sudden, I'm like the general manager, this, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed white guy who's having a conversation with all the people who speak Haitian Creole. And we were able to talk together. So it was it's pretty cool when you get these experiences. But the thing is, you don't know how much experience you're getting in the moment. It always, you always figure it out later. So I always tell people, be curious, be open-minded, be willing to take those risks, have a growth mindset. And then I think to that idea of leaving Disney, it was the same idea. Okay. I got to a point where I'm like, you know what? I don't know what next is next for me. Um, I like operating theme parks. Uh, maybe doing something internationally would be interesting. Um, you know, my wife started to say, Hey, are you, are you having as much fun as you used to have? You know, what are we doing next? And she could see it. I couldn't see it. And so for a year, we talked about it. And I said, you know, basically, there's no way I can leave Disney. I don't know how to do anything else. I'm institutionalized. I can't make it on the outside. But luckily, I had incredible role models, including my father. You know, he retired from Disney in 06. And he launched a whole nother career. He wrote four books, became a keynote speaker, started doing podcasts. So when I talked to him about it. He goes, oh, yeah, you'd be fine. And uh, so he was, he was in and I talked to Valerie about it, my wife. And I said, what if this doesn't work out? She said, well, you can just, you can always go get a job. I'm like, wait a second, you're supposed to be worried and I'm supposed to be the happy go lucky person. If you're not worried and I'm worried, there's, I'm really worried because I don't worry about anything. But uh, she said, no, let's, let's just try it out. Our kids were grown up, you know, they're out of the house 
and off to college. So it's not like we were impacting their lives either. So it all kind of came together and we, we took a leap and uh, we've learned so much in the past two and a half years about how to be entrepreneurs, how to just figure out to create structure. Um, it's been an incredible voyage and learning. And I, as she says, it feels like we just got out of college, except this time we have a little money in our pocket and we're a heck of a lot wiser than we were in, when we were 22. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. And I just love listening to you talk about self-awareness and growth mindset. And you just now touched a little bit upon human behavior and even how others view you. I had an opportunity recently to be a part of the Disney Institute classes. And I got a glimpse into the world of the cast members. And actually, when we talked to your dad, Lee Cockrell, on this podcast, and for those of you that haven't heard that podcast, please go back and listen to it. It was amazing. He mentioned how important it was to put himself in the cast member's shoes and to walk around the parks and to feel their experiences firsthand. I'm curious now that you are also somewhat on the other side of the fence. How important is it for you when you're looking at new clients to put yourself in the feet of their shoes as you look at ways to consult them? Yeah, it's, it's as important as it was when I worked at Disney. Uh, you know, I've, I've learned over time that I lead with relationships. That's that I have to have that first. And that's how I get, that's how what differentiates me to be able to get things done. So a couple of examples, um, Valerie and I have done some consulting with a train company down in uh, Peru. And uh, when we talked to them, they said, you know, we want to improve our service levels and, and make more money and get it, and people coming back and talking highly about us. So we basically said, okay, the first, um, the first trip we make down there, we just want to be tourists. We're going to come down. We're going to buy our tickets online. Because they said, we'll get the tickets for you. I said, no, no, we want to do everything like a, a customer would. An American in the United States looking at uh, your website, and we're going to keep track of everything. We're going to see how it does it make sense. Does the process make sense? Is it clear if we have a question? Um, I purposely didn't print some of the tickets I was supposed to because a lot of customers don't follow directions. I wanted to see how they were going to deal with that. We flew to Peru. We uh, went on the train, we took pictures, we asked questions, we were customers for a week. And at the end of that week, we had a full report, just not even as professionals, just as consumers and said, all right, here's, here's what was great. Here's what you need to improve from our point of view. The second trip we took, we said, uh, we want to meet with your frontline employees and frontline managers and do a couple days of workshop. And the executive said, well, what about us? We said, we'll get to you eventually, but we want to get to the people who are doing the job. And we talked to them and we said, hey, how do you all do this? And we found out a lot of the things that we experienced the first time as customers were, you know, it was process issues. They said, yeah, we've always wanted to do that, but we just have, we don't have the resources or hey, we don't have the training or we don't have the tools to do that. So we really wanted to put ourselves in the shoes of the, you know, the employees and how they got their work done and, and how they interacted with the management team. Um, we're working with a, a big uh, accounting firm and, uh, we're going to lead a strategic planning session. There's 33 partners in this accounting firm. And I told them, I said, look, I'll do this. We'll do the strategy session, but I want to talk to every partner and meet everybody beforehand. And they said, there's 33 people. I said, I want to meet all of them online. I want to, on Zoom, I want to get to know who they are, what's on their minds, their backgrounds. So the day Valerie and I were, walked into that room, we were not strangers. We were like Dan and Valerie. We knew them, they knew us. And it was so much more powerful when you do that. And so I think as a consultant, I've taken the same approach I took at Disney. You got to put the time in. You can't just come in and give people a formula. You have to really get those relationships. It's a lot of time, a lot of effort up front, 
But, um, you know, we want to make sure we're delivering value. And that's the, the big way to do it is make sure you know the people you're working for, you understand their business from a consumer, from a frontline employer, from an executive point of view, and then offer your opinion based on your experience. That's awesome. I would like to dig a little bit deeper into relationships because you talked about it a lot today and you talk about it a lot on your podcast. I think back to, I don't even know how many years, it's probably been 15. I'm going to grab that bit right here. I have, I got, I got your dad's book, Creating Magic, the year yeah. that it came out. Never imagined in my life that I would get to meet him uh, or talk to him. It was just a book that I admired. And at the time I was working at a different company that valued a lot of the principles that he wrote about in this book. And years later, I met a lady who actually was a former cast member, but I knew of her from a different organization. And she said, oh, you have to listen to this podcast I just did with this guy, Lee Cockrell. Yeah. And it just coincidentally was that your dad also did a podcast that same at that same time with somebody else. And that then led to Andy contacting him and seeing if he would be willing to talk with us. And in the midst of this coffee shop that I was sharing with you that your dad took me to for the conversation, he said, well, you really should listen to my son's podcast and he's the guy you need to really talk to. And so we're just so, so thrilled that we could get to talk with you today. I was mentioning to you before we got on the call that I love my time at Disney and I have two friends who are cast members at Disney that I worked with at the competition down the street, I don't know, way back in 1992, 1993. And we've stayed great friends all these years. And so I've, I'm curious if you can share with us how important is networking and making connections for you? Yeah, I mean, there, it, there's multiple reasons it's important to have great relationships. I think first of all, just at a base level, um, you know, so many people today kind of, it's this business formula where you have to make friends so you can get ahead and do this. It's like, well, does anyone remember the days of just getting to know people because it's nice to get to know people and learn things from them. And, um, you know, I think some managers say, well, you have to have a very professional relationship with your employees and don't get too close. And I'm like, yeah, there are certain lines you can't cross, but you, you should absolutely get to know your people on a personal level. I mean, they spend more time, at work with you than they do with their families. So why wouldn't you get to know them? What makes them, what, what, what kind of drives them and what, how do they work best? Um, you know, a lot of times I don't think leaders realize, you know what, the more you, you need to have your standards and the way you do your work. But if you can also personalize the way you interact with each of your direct reports, they're going to be more responsive. They're going to, they, they're, all, they're all motivated differently. Um, some people need to hear regularly that they're doing a good job because they just have maybe a lack of confidence and that re really gets them going all the time. Other people, you know, they have more of an ego. They just assume I'm doing great. I'll assume I'm a superstar until you tell me I'm not. And just, if you want to make me feel good, give me some money. You know, some people are motivated differently. So I think the more you get to know people individually and it's like, you know, it's the same raising kids. My wife and I raised three kids. They couldn't be more different. Like, you know, every parent knows and you have to, you know, you have to um, interact with them differently if you want to discover their mastery and get the best out of them. Um, so I think that's, that, that's one thing. Also relationships is a great business strategy because when people feel like they belong, uh, they feel like they're in a place where they're respected and they feel comfortable and they trust the people around them. They're just going to, they're predictably going to do better. They're going to do their jobs better. They're going to be more open. They're going to be more open to negative feedback, critical feedback when they do, no, don't do something right. Um, you know, a lot of leaders, I think say, well, 
I gave the feedback. I'm like, all right, you're 50% done. Did the other person accept the feedback? And are they actually going to change their behavior? A lot of people think just saying it is enough. Um, and I tell people the most important thing you need before you give anyone feedback on their performance is have a relationship with them. If you really want it to stick, uh, it, it relationships, they, they help, um, they allow you to forgive people more easily. They allow people to forgive you more easily when you make a mistake. They allow people to um, overlook your faults. They allow people, when you uh, say something you didn't mean, they still trust you and they don't discard you because they don't know you. So relationships, it just, it does so much for everything. And uh, I was writing something the other day and I talk about this is a lot, you know, most companies are able to get all their people to an 80% level. They will contribute and perform at 80% just with the guidelines and the rules in place. The companies that are great unlock the 20% discretionary effort. Because you can work at 80% and work in a company forever and never get fired. The people, the companies who unlock that 20% get people to want to do more, mm -hmm. to want to participate more, to want to open up more and help each other. And uh, that's the companies that are really successful. And the irony is you can't force people to do that. It's discretionary. So you have to influence them and convince them to want to do more. And a lot of that frustrates a lot of leaders because they want to you know, it's a different approach you have to take. You can't go directly take it. You have to create the environment and then hope. It's kind of like planting a, a sapling. You, you plant it, you water it, you hope the sun is out, you create the right environment, and then you just hope it sprouts. And that's what a lot of leadership's about. And um, uh, relationships is like that. You're going to make the investment and some are going to come out well and some aren't, but you have to make that investment. And a lot of leaders, it, it takes time, it takes empathy, it takes focus, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a process. You just has to be wired into you. You can't do it efficiently. That's why I think a lot of leaders don't like, I'd love to put a note at the magic kingdom. Hey, my name's Dan and I'd care about you, you know, but that's not how you interact with people. You have, it has to be personal. And so you just have to have that, uh, make that investment. Absolutely. We invest a lot of time at SAP talking about the differences between managing and leading and the process side and the people side and how important people are. Andy, I wonder if you'd like to share some thoughts and questions around leadership topics. Yeah, yeah. And I think it goes hand in hand with what you were just saying, uh, Dan. You know, you talked about relationships and empathy. And I think empathy is one of the larger topics that we talk about on this particular podcast. And I think in the year 2020, empathy has it's, it's even more important now just with everyone, you know, everyone has their own things going on, their different battles at home. Um, and I know that I listened to one of your podcasts and I also looked in your blog and you talked about the importance of talking about non-work related things with each member of the team. Obviously, yeah, we're going to focus some, you know, meetings on work related topics for performance. But as you were saying, to build that relationship and to build that trust, I think, talking about things that are non-work related can really go a long way in building that trust in those relationships. Yeah. I, I was, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's funny. I'm not an empathetic guy and I don't like, like all the chit chat. I like getting stuff done, mm -hmm. but I have learned that you got to do that. It's not that I'm faking it, but the point is you got to spend that time. And so I, I learned over time, I created a, a habit that I hadn't had before. When I got to work every morning, I would go and see as many people as I could between my car and my office and I'd stop. Hey, how are you doing this morning? Uh, I see the merchandise person stocking. Hey, you got a lot of stuff coming in. What's new, your new product? I'd go into the elevator and the third shift people would be there. Hey, how was your night last night? How, did it get cold? I get up to the reception desk. Hey, what's going on? How's your dog? 
you know, and I, I, I learned over time to have those little moments where it, w it wasn't about business. It wasn't about how's the park running. It was about how are you doing? And you can create a habit to do that. And you, you actually can put, you can schedule this time. Uh, I knew an executive at Disney, he would put on his calendar on Friday afternoons, like for 90 minutes, go walk around the office and just stop in people's offices. So it's not like, and it's not like he didn't want to do it, but if he didn't schedule, he certainly wasn't going to do it just kind of out of hand because he, he was going to get his work done. So I think that idea of taking those um, moments and, and reminding yourself to have those conversations with people, um, it's, it makes a huge difference because they'll see that, okay, I'm not just a person here to create value for the company. There's, we have a relationship. You're interested in what I do. And the funny thing is I end up learning a lot about when I'm, when I put myself in a situation where I'm more likely to ask questions about people. Um, in fact, this weekend I was over at the beach and I stopped at this pizza place and, uh, I was waiting for my pizza and having a beer at the, that little bar there. And there's this other guy probably in his, I don't know, mid to late sixties. And we started chatting. And um, by the end of the 20 minute conversation, like I knew he had been in the air force for 23 years. He was an engineer. He had served abroad. Um, I asked him about, you know, what are the top, like your top, if you had to be interviewed or you were doing a podcast, what were your top uh, experiences in the air force? He's like, wow, no one ever asked me these questions. And he's like, well, um, I was at Checkpoint Charlie in Eastern Europe when the wall came down. He told me that whole story. And he was at Edwards Air Force Base. And he was at the bar where uh, Chuck Yeager used to go. And, you know, so he told me these incredible stories. And the only reason I knew about him was because I just sat back and asked questions. Mm -hmm. And I took an interest in it. And so I, I don't think, and, and that's, that's been different. A lot of times we like to talk about what we know and who we are and ourselves. And I've realized over time, if you can just teach yourself to ask people questions, you're going to learn a ton. Not only are you going to, they're going to feel valued because you're interested in what they're saying, but you're going to learn something really cool too. And it's just a different approach. Um, and, you know, as you get older, you, you change. I think you start to see the world doesn't revolve around you anymore. And, you know, there's other stuff going on. There's a famous quote that I really love, and it, it's from Maya Angelou. And she says that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. And that just takes such a high level of emotional intelligence as a leader. You talked earlier about diversity in talent, and now we're talking about diversity in thoughts and actions. And you mentioned in your new book that uh, diversity is important as well in bringing up an environment where people can leverage their skills and their potential. And I love how you break down, Dan, in your book, uh, the four-step process to enhance your effectiveness and that the first process you talk about in your book is about leading self, which may not be exactly what some people expect. And I can say firsthand that it's without a doubt, a doubt that the first step to becoming a leader is to develop yourself in order to develop others. And if you can't lead yourself, then it'll be very difficult to lead others in addition to yourself. So would you like to share a little bit more about this or even other parts of the process for our listeners as they go get the book? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the plug too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, once again, um, I think a lot, a big part that influenced me uh, was growing up and um, just enjoying sports so much and realizing, looking at that after I started working that, wow, athletes and people who are working have a lot in common, uh, but they don't treat their jobs the same way. You know, when I was in, uh, in college, you know, I played rugby and boy, rugby guys, they like to drink and have fun, but I was the captain of the team. And I figured out that if we had a Saturday match, 
I would have a big party on Thursday night. So these guys would all be tired. So they get a good night's sleep on Friday so we could actually do well on Saturday. So I knew how important getting some sleep was, um, getting prepared for the match, being in the right um, mental state. So there's a lot of things that athletes do. They have psychologists that help them visualize. Um, if you ever watch, um, you know, top athletes, I know Michael Phelps, for example, every day when he trains, he has the same routine. And he has the same routine whether he's going to go do a, a workout or whether he's going to go swim in the Olympics for in the final. He's got the same routine. He eats the same thing. He takes the same time. He listens to the same music because he wants to create that, that, uh, that uh, pattern. And um, so there's a whole bunch of things that athletes do that I don't, you know, it makes sense that if we're in the corporate world or anyone who has a job, why wouldn't you do the same thing? Why wouldn't you make sure you're hydrated? Why don't you make sure you have the right diet? Um, get, you know, you don't have to be a world-class athlete or triathlete, but get, get out and get physical exercise that, you know, get your endorphins going, um, get your, you know, be able to visualize success. What does that look like? Getting your mind in the right place. So that whole lead, um, lead self thing is a big deal for me. And, uh, Valor and I had, a you know, some conversations with a few different people, including the publisher who said, you know what, should we really put that at the beginning of the book? It's a management leadership book. And people are going to buy it and it's going to maybe turn them off a little bit at the beginning saying, well, I didn't buy a self-help book. I wanted a leadership management book, but it just seemed like if that's really how, what we believe in, we, it has to be at the beginning of the book. If you put it at the back of the book, you're going to do the same thing most people do in reality, put it at the back of their priorities. And so, um, those are all real important things because, uh, there's a couple things I talk about. One is if you get an airplane and the safety spiel is you put your oxygen mask on yourself first. Because mm -hmm. if you don't put it on yourself first and now you pass out and the people who can't help themselves, now they're in trouble. Everyone's in trouble. So you take care of yourself first, then you help others. Uh, and um, it's um, I've seen that where I talk to people about, you know, I have three big priorities in my life and I have my little internal scorecard I use every day. Um, and the order is self, family and friends and career in that order. And so every day I think to myself, all right, did I work out today? That's my release. If I can work out, I feel more confident. I feel better. I have more energy. Everything's better. Um, and so um, I ran this morning. So check. I did well today on that. Um, family and friends. You know, I talked to my wife earlier this morning. I texted my son yesterday up in Boston. I'll see if I talk to him. So, so far, we'll see how we do. And then hopefully this podcast goes well today. And so, you know, that's the other check mark. But you have to prioritize. And it's not that you're going to do everything well every day. You just have to keep um, all those balls in the air. And so if I don't work out tomorrow, then I have to work out the next day. And if I don't, you know, have, have lunch with my uh, one of my kids in the next few months, then I got to make sure I do that. So you're always trying to keep these. But you have to have a limited amount of priorities. And once again, self is always top of the list. And people are really surprised to hear that. They're like, really? What about your children? What about your wife? What about your parents? They're not the most important thing. I said, no, they're extremely important. But if I'm not in the right mindset, if I'm not in the right place, then I'm not going to be my best for them. And uh, I think it's a little, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a key to success. I wonder what you think about the idea, Dan, that if you can change your mind, that you can change the world. And when we think about things like organizational change, or even, my goodness, the change that's happening in our own country right now, you actually talk about the four key aspects of leading change at the end of your book. And it's been said that you can't control things that happen to you, but that you control what happens in and through you. You talked a little bit about it earlier in our chat. 
And if life is 10%, let's say, of what happens to us, but it's 90% of how we react to it, that's an important reminder that we can't control everything that happens to us, but we can focus on what we can control, which would, might be our reactions. And I'm curious if you can share with us, how would you feel adversity impacts opportunities in your life? Yeah, so I have a you know, specific example I think everyone's been touched by is this COVID-19, right? So back in March, We'd just gotten back from Peru on um, the uh, phase two of our four phase project and phase three and four are yet to come and probably will never come. Uh, we had, we were supposed to be in Australia last month. We had keynote speeches and workshops and we had all kinds of stuff lined up and all of a sudden within a week, everything got canceled. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my wife and I are looking at each other going, Hey, this whole entrepreneurship thing was good until now <laughs> when, when there's no opportunities. And so we kind of sat back and said, all right, what are we going to do? And we didn't make like an instant decision, but I reached out to everyone who um, is on my distribution list and said, hey, I'm going to be hosting a free mastermind call um, Monday through Friday every week. Is anyone interested? And about 250 people responded. Mm -hmm. So for three months, for Monday through Friday, I had 10 groups. Every two weeks, the, the next group came up and we talked about, we had people from all of the United States, Canada. Uruguay, Australia, uh, we'd get on and talk about how, how's everyone doing? How's everyone coping with this? What's going on in your country? What are you doing? We had a guy from Bowling Green who runs a coffee shop and we were giving him advice on how to keep his business going. And, you know, we, so we all just talked to each other and it was free. Um, and that resulted now. And we just launched last month, a subscription community that Valerie and I and Jody, my, my partner with my podcast launched. And so we know how to do it now because I unknowingly was doing a pilot back mm -hmm. during the quarantine. I didn't think it was going to turn into anything, but now it's become a revenue stream for us and a way to build our community. Um, we, um, Valerie and our daughter, Margot, just graduated from the University of Colorado. They created a, a full co undergrad college course, and my book is the textbook. And they created 13 weeks of reading quizzes, a midterm exam, a final exam, case studies, and we're piloting now at Suffolk Community College. We never would have done that if the, if the, the quarantine hadn't happened. So the idea was, okay, a bunch of stuff went away and it was up to us to find a bunch of new stuff that we could do that we wouldn't have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. And we invested time and we didn't necessarily invest all that time thinking it would pan out. It was just, let's get more experiences. Let's learn what else we can be doing here until things get back to quote unquote normal. And now that we're going to come out of this eventually, not only do we have the keynotes and the workshops and all the stuff that we've been doing. Now we have college courses and we have this community and we've created a whole bunch of new stuff. So um, you can sit back on your couch and say, I'm going to curl up till life gets back to normal, or you can get up um, and just go try stuff. And you don't know what's going to work and not work. But if you just, if you open doors, some doors are going to uh, you know, slam right back in on your face and some doors are going to open. You're going to step through and there's going to be six more doors and you just don't know until you do it. Absolutely. I think people thought we were a little bit crazy when Andy and I started talking about doing this Let's Be Real podcast. Yeah. And there's no way you're going to be able to interview these different people. And there's no way people will listen. And there's no way people will learn. And there's no way you're going to be able to have continuity. And, and it's turned out to be amazing simply because of like what you described is we took a step. And we took a step that others didn't take. And it could have gone one of many different ways, I'm sure. We're so grateful that you're here. Andy, I've been asking all the questions, so I'm going to bounce <laughs> back over to you. 
No, yeah, but I agree. I mean, you're right, Denise. I mean, uh, just taking that extra step, I think it made a huge impact. Everyone is uh, experts on Zoom now, right? I don't think we had too many Zoom experts <laughs> around this time a year ago. Uh, and we have so many companies working from home with, who never thought they'd be working from home. So uh, it's definitely been a resilient time, I would say, for, for everyone involved. But one of the concepts... So, so, so Andy, sorry, really yeah. quick, I would say, I mean, how liberating and fun is it for you all to have created something out of nothing when mm -hmm. everything was falling down around you? It gives you a sense of control. Right. And you're like, look, you're not going to affect my life, COVID. I'm going to go do something else and I'm going to learn to yeah. do something else. And now you have all this experience. I'm sure not only are you doing this, but you're taking a lot of what you're learning here and you're reinvesting it back in your day jobs. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's just all kinds of positivity that comes out of it. And people who are, um, I think the people who are skeptical of that think the rest of us are naive. And, you know, mm -hmm. How can you be so positive in such a tough situation? It's like, well, I got no other choice. Well, I do have a choice. I can just sit around and yeah. be miserable, but life keeps going on. So might as well make the best of it. Mm -hmm. We talked about how you take your skills and you can apply them into these different areas. Andy's a perfect example. You know, Andy, I know it's not a podcast to interview you, but I think it's an amazing story. If you could just share with our listeners how it came to pass that you already had the skills of being a broadcast interviewer and how easy it was to segue to do this. Yeah, I think it was always, uh, you know, I, I went to school for radio and TV. I have a background with um, Pittsburgh Penguins radio network before I came to SAP. And, you know, I'd always had an interest in, and Dan, you mentioned the sports, like I'm a big sports guy. I always felt that leadership was very interesting to me, um, a team aspect. And I thought that there was an opportunity for me to maybe talk about that with SAP and, you know, talking to Denise, Denise gave me a lot of support and we were able to build this podcast and we've been able to interview some amazing guests such as yourself, your dad. Um, we've had Doc Emmerich on who just retired recently. So we've had a lot of great guests. And I think the cool thing is, is that so many people have learned from it, including myself. Um, I was not a manager when I started this podcast, but now I am. And I think a lot of it is from the lessons that I've learned from just talking to different people and trying to apply that in my job. So um, for me, it's just extremely rewarding to have this opportunity, not only to interview people, I mean, that that's all great and all, but um, I think the ability to impact others is, is really what it's about for me. So it's it's been a fun journey. That's great. I'll tell you, that's a perfect illustration of this idea of you don't know what experiences are gonna be valuable. Yeah. You're in college studying broadcast, and then you said, well, forget that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go work for SAP. Imagine if you said, I'm going to go to SAP and work there, and I'm going to be a broadcaster. People yeah. are like, well, how does that work? They don't, they're not in that business. You're like, they will be. So mm -hmm. it's, it's everything builds on it. I'll tell you, it's, it's, uh, it's just, it, it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. When you look back on the quilt of your life, it's interesting to see how it all weaves together. Yeah. Uh, for me and in my background, I never imagined I would come to work for a technology company, let alone one of the best in the entire world. My degrees are in music and tourism and entertainment and spent many, many years in that world. And it had zero to do with technology. And I'll never forget, there was a recruiter 
that talked to me when I was getting ready to come here, I literally said to him, you do not want to hire me. I am not the person that, that you need in your business. And he said to me something that always stuck with me. He said, Denise, if you can translate the foreign language of music in a way that an audience can get a response from it, you can take the foreign language of our software and communicate it to our customers in a way that they can understand it. And that's exactly why we want to bring you here. And even when I still was hesitant and said yes, that I would come, it's been almost 13 years. I've had such amazing opportunities. And yet, to your point, 13 years ago, I was never thinking that we would have an opportunity to sit here and talk with you about one of the happiest places on earth and some of the amazing things that come from these experiences together and to watch Andy grow and thrive. And, and I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your experiences with us and also these life lessons. And these life lessons now are really, you know, memorialized, if you will, because it's on paper. Anyone can learn these simple, not easy, but simple Mm -hmm. ways to live your life and you made a great point Dan that it's not just about your life at work it's about your life there I often say to people there's no such thing as work-life balance you have a job it's part of your life and it's how you decide to balance all those different things together well said yeah and I think it goes back to you know to your title of your book I like the how's the culture in your kingdom and the way that I took that as you know the kingdom could be different things it's not necessarily the magic kingdom, you know, it could be your home, it could be your workplace, it could be your church. So I'm assuming I took that correctly in that title. I like the way that it's written, because I, that's how I took it as, you know, the kingdom could be different for everyone. And, and you could have multiple kingdoms too. Absolutely. Right on. Uh, everyone's got, you know, we all have many different kingdoms. Anywhere we spend time with people, there's a culture and we get to participate in that culture. And that becomes a kingdom that we live in. And then you have to just decide, is it the kind of place I want to be or can I make it a better place or can I influence it to be better and help others? So you're, you, you got that right on, Andy. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I know we're short on time here, Dan. So I wanted to just first thank you. And where can everyone go to find more information about your book and, and any other projects that they're, you know, that's going on right now? Yeah, there's three websites. So the first one we launched about two and a half years ago is dancockrell.com. And, uh, it's an, it's a it's a good website, but then you go to cockrellconsulting.com, which my wife designed. It is really good because uh, she's very de detail oriented. And then culture-kingdom.com. If you want to order a book, you can order my book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble wherever you buy books. Um, if you'd like a a, a sign an autograph copy with I, I have these digital bonuses I provide, uh, you can go to culture-kingdom.com and order it there, and I'll get a copy to you. I think your dad is a huge fan of your website. I remember when we interviewed him, he said that your website was a little bit better than his. So it's, uh, you got a little friendly competition there, I think. <laughs> There's always friendly competition and he's uh, been an incredible supporter of everything I'm doing. And it's, I'm yeah. really lucky to you know have him as a cheerleader there. So it's, it's good. <laughs> well, hey, Dan, uh, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was really nice talking to you and uh, you've shared a lot of great stories and a lot of great lessons for our listeners. So thank you so much for, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Everyone be safe. Thank you.